0: This morning, we are starting uh, a new series that we are calling The Talk. Um, A conversation about love and sex and marriage and dating and singleness. Because we do believe if anyone should be talking about these things... It should be the church. As many of you know, I grew up in the church as the son of a pastor. And I can safely say that in growing up in the church, these issues were skirted. They were seldom ever spoken of, which meant I had to learn about marriage and singleness in sex and dating from Hollywood and from my friends in middle school. That is not the ideal way to discover these things. And so I can tell you that as a dad, one of my great commitments was that I wanted my kids to hear what I never had the opportunity to hear. And I wanted them to hear it from me. That's part of what this series is. What this series is, is what I wish my parents would have told me about marriage and love and sex and singleness and dating. What this series is, is really what I want my kids to learn and understand about marriage and singleness and sex and dating, regardless of what they ultimately choose to do with it. I at least want them armed with God's truth. Because relationships, love, sex, dating, you name it, it was God's idea in the first place. Which is another reason why if anybody should be talking about these things, it should be God's people, God's church who long to lean into God's Design. Hollywood has no problem talking about it, but somehow in the church we become really ashamed, we become really timid, and we skirt these issues. And so we want to take some time to talk about God's design in these regards. And I want to just say by way of disclaimer, um, this series is going to stretch you. Maybe not this morning so much, but this series is going to stretch you. This series is going to annoy you. It's going to frustrate you. You are going to have frustrated feels with me because I am going to tamper and mess with some of your ideals and some of your practices. And you're not going to like me, maybe because I'm right. But that's a separate issue altogether. I I want to ask you in advance, stay through the series uh, to see where it goes. I want to ask you in advance, plan on having these conversations with people in your circle, whether it's people in your dorm room, or it's your family, or it's your small group, uh, or it's the small group that you're about to connect with here in Connection Month. Plan on carrying on the conversation, and ultimately, let's plan on leaning most on what God's word says. Not my feelings, not my parents' feelings, not Kondo's opinion, not what you've experienced growing up. But ultimately, what does God, the designer of these things, have to say in his word? So, um, we're looking forward to this um, series and learning together in these ways. If you have a copy of the scriptures, um, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And um, as you do that, let me start by airing uh, a grievance. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to have the verses up here on the screen behind me. But I want to start by airing um, ...a grievance, and I realize that this grievance is likely to start an argument um, with my wife. So please don't tell her, okay? Gossips. Um, I, I think it's fair to say, by the way, that my wife is near perfect in every way. She just happens to have a fatal flaw that I discovered very, very early in our relationship, and that flaw... Don't judge her. It is her less than sophisticated choice in movies. It is just a weakness on her part. It's not her fault. Yes, it is her fault, actually. I don't know who else to blame for that. In either case, it's inexcusable. Now, for me, being a fully advanced human being, When it comes time to choose a movie, I'm going to choose a movie in the suspense drama genre. Because that's what's up with a little sprinkle of action, if you don't mind. I like to watch a movie and at the end of the movie be saying, yeah, and huh? Because it made me think and it made me very, 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 very happy. My wife, again, please don't judge her. Forgive her. Um... (laughs) She likes to watch <laughs> romantic comedies. <laughs> now, again, don't judge her. Let me. Um, she wants one of those like boy sees girl. And boy turns the world upside down in order to have girl and to capture a heart and win her over and, and these are the kinds of things that she enjoys watching. I discovered this really, really early on in uh, our relationship, which the, much prayer and fasting uh, to move beyond that point but it is it's he turns the world upside down and he donates blood to be with her and you know and. She, she, my wife, she wants that fairy tale, prince faces witches and he fights dragons to rescue the princess and, and capture her heart. And, and, and then, you know, explosions optional. No, no action even required for her to enjoy the movie. And without fail, I will wake up partway through these movies and find her like three boxes of Kleenex into these crazy Experiences. And again, not that I need to convince you that uh, my choice of movies are superior. But let me do it anyway, just to bring some clarity to the issue. Because here's my beef with romantic comedies. And while I'm at it, here's my beef with fairy tales. Um, I told you this wasn't a kid-friendly series. It, it'll be fine for your kids. But here's my problem with romantic comedies and fairy tales. It's the ending. I don't like how these stories and these (laughs) movies end. They seem to all end the same way. There's a kiss, and then they walk off into the horizon of happily ever after. My wife is crying, and she's looking at me. Why can't we walk off into happily ever after? And it's just nobody has time for that. So here's the thing. Um... My issue with the kiss and the happily ever after ending is I'm the kind of person who's like, "Mm, I want to see. I'm like, um, show me happily ever after. I want to see this place. The movie always seems to end there. Then the credits roll. The fairy tale seems to end there. Show me happily ever after. I want to see Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan five years later. I want to see the sequel to Sleepless in Seattle. That's what I want to see. I want to see happily ever after with a two-year-old. That's what I want to see. Show me happily ever after. Because inevitably they just fall in love and they keep falling in love and no one ever seems to land anyway. They just keep falling in love in this mystical world in which you know no one has morning breath and, and and underwear is mysteriously picked up and the toilet seat is just always left down. Show me happily ever after. I have a beef with romantic comedies. Show me the rest of the story if you don't mind. Now, again, I'm not saying all this to be disparaging of your dreams and your desires and your choice of movie genre. Maybe a little bit, but mainly. I'm airing this grievance with romantic comedies to help you understand why I love Ephesians chapter 5 so much. I I love Ephesians 5 because the author, Paul, is one of the first people who dares to be courageous enough to take us beyond the horizon of happily ever after. Paul is courageous enough to take us beyond the credits and actually work to paint a picture of what this dream and ideal marriage looks like in a practical day-to-day way. Because the truth is, deep down inside, we all like romantic comedies. Some of us just struggle to admit it a little bit more because we all long to be part of that dream relationship. Because God designed us all with a longing to be caught up in a love Story. He made us with longings to chase and be chased, to choose and be chosen. And something about that genre of movie, something about those kids' stories speaks to that deep longing with which God designed. And what Paul does is he helps paint a picture of what this perfect fairy tale relationship actually looks like. Beyond the credits, beyond the imaginary life, he actually works to paint the picture of God's ideal. Marriage, And the reason we want to start here, the reason we want to take some time to look at what Paul has to say about the ideal marriage, and you see this in a little bit, is because if we understand God's idea of an ideal marriage, if we understand some of the principles that Paul uses to describe God's idea of an ideal marriage, it will inform everything we need to know about love, sex, singleness, and dating. If we understand the principles Paul lays out behind The veil in Ephesians chapter 5. And so, we want to look at this passage together, starting at verse 22. Here's what Paul says. This is what it looks like. It may not be Hollywood. It may not seem pretty, but this is God's design of the ideal marriage. And he says, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. I'm going to jump down um, to verse 31. For this reason. A man, and this reason being marriage, union. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband now there are a lot of things for us to see in the words that the apostle paul uses there are a lot of things paul wants us to see about god's idea of an ideal marriage but there is one thing that towers above the rest of them. And if we miss this, if we miss this idea, if we miss this concept, miss this principle, we miss the very heart of God and we miss the doorway through which we begin to walk into his idea of an ideal marriage. And here's the thing Paul wants us to understand about God's idea of an ideal marriage. And we have it up here on the screen. It's this idea that marriage is ultimately about Jesus. Marriage is ultimately about Jesus. I cannot tell you how much I wish this would have been told to me when I was a kid growing up. I can't tell you how much I want my kids to understand this truth. Marriage is ultimately about The person of Jesus Christ. When Paul is done describing marriage, husbands do this, wives do this, and and interact this way and interact that way, he gets to this section in verse 31 where he says, For this reason, marriage, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I am ultimately talking about Jesus Christ and the church. The ideal marriage, church, it exists to paint a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. This is a profound mystery of which Paul speaks. Marriage ultimately exists to paint a picture of Jesus Christ, and in particular, the way he has chosen to love an undeserving, sinful people called the church. Um, And when Paul describes this in verse 25, he says, and the way Jesus chose to love his church was by giving himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. He sacrificed himself to see the church become everything God designed her to be. The ideal marriage exists to reflect that sacrificial love that Jesus loved the church And look at the way Paul describes this love Jesus has for his church in another passage. This is in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. It says Jesus, and we'll have this up here, who being in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We had sinned against a holy God. We deserved to die. But instead, Jesus chose to leave the comfort of heaven, to disrobe himself, as we like to say, of his glory and put on humanity. Jesus became a baby. Again, the idea of omnipotence, the idea of God, omniscience, having to learn to walk, having to learn to talk is mind-boggling, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He came into a dark and broken world, leaving the comfort of his paradise. He went from being the center of unbroken praise to becoming the center of ridicule and mockery in order to reach and run after this undeserving people called The church. And then, obviously, in the ultimate expression of love ever, Jesus was crucified on a cross. He took our place on the cross. He died in our place. Why? So that He could see us soar and become everything that God had created and designed us to be. He sacrificed Himself to see us. Live. And what Paul is saying is every romantic comedy, every fairy tale, your parents' love story, your dream of a love story, your own love story ultimately exists to reflect that love for his church. And what Paul is saying is ultimately Jesus was the one who left his father and came into this broken world and died on a cross in order to woo and win and be united with his wife. The church. And now the ideal picture of God's marriage is one in which the spouses are learning to treat each other the way Jesus Christ has treated his church. Marriage is fullest. Marriage is most meaningful when the couple learns the art of giving themselves up. The way Jesus did for us. What Paul says is behind the credits and is behind the happily ever after is a world in which a couple is learning what it means to give themselves up to see the other soar. That's the picture of the ideal. Marriage, And then Paul spends some time laying out some practical principles of what that looks like in real life. And again, I think if we start to get a picture of what this looks like in a marriage, it's going to inform the way we view dating, the way we think about singleness, it's going to inform the way we think about sex in God's ideal design. So Paul gives us some principles that we want to look at. And uh, the way we want to do this is by comparing some of the principles that show up in this passage um, with our own instinct. Because what you will find really quickly is that God's picture of an ideal marriage flies in the face of what's instinctive and intuitive to us part of the reason it doesn't make the most romantic of comedies, and yet it does paint the most beautiful of pictures. So let's look at uh, a couple of things together. Um, God's ideal marriage is one in which the spouses choose sacrifice over Compromise. Sacrifice over compromise. Um, The the picture that, that Paul paints of the ideal marriage is one in which the native language of the relationship is sacrifice. It's not about how much you can make me feel better about me... It's about how much I can spend of myself to see you become the fullest version of you that God intended. Sacrifice. The question of the ideal marriage is not how much I can get out of you. It's how much of me I can give up for you. That is not intuitive. If it means you get to see more of Jesus, and if it means you get to become more of who he designed you to be, I will give it up. Sacrifice. And Paul communicates the idea of sacrifice by using two beautiful words which the enemy has hijacked and is turned into these ugly, controversial words. But when Paul describes this rhythm of sacrifice, he uses the words submit, and he uses the word Love, And so when he speaks to the wife, he uses the word submit. Look again at verse 22. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Such a beautiful word that the enemy has stolen and has turned into this messy controversy. The idea of submit is really the idea of yielding one's agenda to someone else. The idea of submission is yielding to someone else's agenda to lay down my desires and my dreams, to lay down my preferences and my passions, to lay down my hopes and my my hobbies, to lay down my comforts and, and my conveniences. In order to see someone else benefit. Submit. And when Paul speaks to a wife who has any desire of being caught up in God's ideal marriage. This is the word he uses. And he says to her, what you need to do is major in the art of sacrifice. And sacrifice expresses itself in your willingness to submit, in your willingness to lay aside your agenda to see your husband thrive and soar and become everything that God designed him to be. If you make this marriage about what has he done for me lately, it ceases to move towards God's. Ideal. If you're going to find a marriage most full and most fulfilling, be willing to sacrifice yourself for your husband's sake. When Paul wants to communicate sacrifice to the husband, oh yeah, he does speak to the husband. And we've got to talk about this. When Paul wants to communicate the idea of sacrifice to the husband, he uses not the word submit... He uses the word love. Look at Ephesians 24, uh, 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, at a glance, this is really interesting. And I honestly thought this for a lot of years. Because at a glance, you read this, and it can almost sound like, wives submit and husband love, and love, you know, roses and love, you know, like somehow he got the easier end of the bargain. She has to submit, but he gets to, you know, love, love. Kind of the easier deal, but that is so far from what the apostle Paul is actually communicating. When Paul uses the word love, he's telling his husband, if you have any interest, He's telling this guy, any interest in God's ideal marriage, what you need to do is learn to major in sacrifice. In fact, the word love by definition means sacrifice. It means to give oneself up for the benefit of another. And if there was any doubt that Paul meant sacrifice when he used the word love, look at the rest of verse 25. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he did what? He gave himself up for her. He gave his life to see his church become everything that she was intended to be. When he says to the husband, love, he is simply saying, be willing to sacrifice your dreams and your desires, your comforts and your conveniences, your hopes and your hobbies. Be willing to sacrifice your friends and your fantasy football. If it means the opportunity to see your wife become everything God designed her to be. And so in this beautiful passage, Paul is telling this couple, "Marriage is ultimately about Jesus Christ, and it will be most fulfilling when the native language of your relationship becomes sacrifice. Why? Because marriage was created to paint the picture of Jesus and the way he loved his church. And the way he loved his church was by giving himself up. Nothing paints a more beautiful picture than a couple that insists on out giving up the other to see the other thrive and to see the other soar. Whether the word is submit or whether the word is love. Sacrifice over Compromise, And this is so key for our culture to hear because there is a long-standing myth that has snuck in even into the church and is ruining marriages. And it's distorting the picture of Jesus Christ and the church. And this lie, this myth is the idea that marriage is about compromise. I'll hear well-meaning people say this. Marriage is about compromise. False. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. I told you at the beginning it could get that way. Marriage is not about compromise. Marriage is about sacrifice. Those are not the same things. Compromise says, if you do this, I'll do that. Compromise says, if you meet me halfway, then I'll meet you in the middle. Compromise says, if you do the dishes, then I'll do that, you know, that thing. Compromise says, if you give up one night with the girls, then you know what? I'll give up one quarter of football. Compromise says, if you do something for me, then I will do something for you. But that is not the way... Jesus Christ loved the church. And I am so thankful that Jesus didn't enter into this compromise with the church. If you somehow manage to obey my commands, then I'll move towards you. What could we possibly have offered to Jesus that would have caused him to say, if you give me this, then I'll put mercy on the table. If you offer me this, then I'll offer my life. It wasn't compromise. It was sacrifice if my marriage is going to burst into everything that God designed it to be. Compromise must yield to sacrifice. That paints the beautiful picture of Jesus and his love for the church. If you are practicing negotiations and compromises, you are moving away from God's ideal. If you expect your spouse to produce a certain thing to get your love and to get your support and to get you to major in sacrifice, you are sabotaging your marriage and you are blurring the picture of Jesus and his church. And if your marriage is one in which you are taking as much as you can from your spouse, it's me time. It's what can I do to get a little bit more discretionary spending money? What can I do to get a little bit more pleasure? What can I do to get a little bit more? You are sabotaging your marriage and not moving towards God's ideal. The native language of God's ideal marriage is sacrifice. Sacrifice. And can you imagine, by the way, how compelling a picture of Jesus is painted in the world around you when your friends and your co-workers are trying to figure out why y'all keep loving and serving each other even when he doesn't seem to be giving much, I'm sorry. Well, he doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be, and yet you continue to sacrifice. That paints a picture of what Jesus did for undeserving Sinners. We'll see how far we get. The, the, the next thing um, is God's ideal marriage is one in which choice wins over obligation. Choice wins over obligation. The picture of God's ideal marriage is choice over obligation. Meaning the spouse's. Submit and love. The the spouses give themselves sacrificially to see the other soar because they choose to, not because they have to. This is huge. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times I've had a couple come and see me because their marriage is in some kind of crisis. And before long, the husband gets into his spiel. And he tells me something to the effect of, okay, uh, so my wife, we're here because my wife, she she won't submit. And so I figured get a little masculine reinforcement and see if we can't together obligate her to submit. My response is typically the same. Okay, um, do you choose to submit? End of conversation. What else do you guys want to talk about? Because all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot get a wife to submit to her husband if she doesn't choose to. Nor should they try. Nor should they ever try. Um, we're here because um, my husband. He just won't love me like Tom Hanks. And so I'm just wondering if you could just quote a scripture real quick and tell him, obligate him to do this. Okay, do you choose to love her like Tom Hanks? Nope. Nope. So she has no mail from you. Nope. She's got no mail. Okay. (laughs) Um, End of conversation. I don't know what to tell you at this point. The ideal marriage is one in which a wife submits to a husband by choice, never by obligation. The ideal marriage is one in which a husband loves his wife by choice, never by obligation. Listen to me. If you are in a marriage or you are dreaming of being part of a marriage in which a spouse is strong-arming the other spouse to yield or to give themselves up or to sacrifice or to support them, You're heading down the wrong path. And there are a couple of ways we know this is key from this passage. And the first way we know this is it's a grammatical reason. Um, When Paul uses the word submit and uses the word love, he's using what are known as reflexive verbs. Reflexive verbs are self-policing verbs. They are actions that I cause on myself. Meaning, Paul is literally saying to the wife, hey, cause yourself to submit to your husband. And he's literally saying to the husband, cause yourself to love your wife. Meaning, nobody else can obligate you to do it. You've got to reflex yourself into loving and into submitting and into sacrificing yourself for your Spouse. Submission and love can only ever be chosen. Never. Obligate. And this is important to know because it means, it, number one, Paul is addressing the spouses as powerful choice-making equals. And it's really sad that I even have to take a moment to address this. But church, I think it's so well worth talking about. Paul is addressing them as choice-making equals. He is not introducing a ranking system in which one has greater superiority than the other. He's not saying one is superior One is inferior. He's addressing choice-making equals in this marriage. He's not addressing the wife as an inferior member of the marriage who submits because she has to. He's saying submit as a choice-maker because no one can obligate you. The words he uses prevent anybody else from compelling her to submit or compelling him. To love, choose to give yourself up to see her thrive because no one can obligate you to do it. So, if you're in a kind of relationship or marriage in which your spouse or significant is treating you as inferior or treating you as superior. You're missing the heart of this passage. If you're in any kind of way trying to get your spouse to sacrifice themselves. It defeats the very beauty of sacrifice, by the way. But if you're trying to convince them and compel them by manipulation. Or you're trying to compel them by force. Or you're trying to compel them by deprivation. Or you're trying to compel them by whatever means. You are blurring the picture of Jesus Christ and his love for The church. Marriage ultimately exists to reflect Jesus and his love for the church. When Jesus submitted to God's redemptive plan, quick question, who obligated him to do that? That's one of the reasons I wanted us to see Philippians chapter 2. He who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he submitted himself to his father's redemptive agenda. Nobody could have obligated Jesus to submit to his father and sacrifice himself for us. That is one of the most beautiful things about the cross. When Jesus put on flesh, who obligated him? When Jesus carried the cross to Calvary, who obligated him? When Jesus hung on the cross, dying for our benefit, who obligated him? Newsflash, all the king's horses and the king's men could not have obligated the Savior to sacrifice himself for us. Redemption was reflexive. Jesus chose it, which is what makes it so beautiful. And when we have the opportunity in our marriages... To choose versus to be obligated by a spouse or to be obligated by some ranking system. The beauty of Jesus and his choice to redeem us is painted pretty beautifully. If there are hints again in your marriage or your picture of marriage in which you see yourself as superior. Again, I tell you, you are missing the heart of. The gospel. If you are ever telling your spouse, you must, you should, you should submit to me, woman, there is no room for that in this passage, and there's no room for it in the gospel itself. And maybe some of us needs to even start by asking for forgiveness for strong-arming and manipulating and lording over spouses and whining to get them to do what you want them to do, missing the fact the beauty of sacrifice is chosen, not obligated. And if nothing else, I want to be in a marriage in which my wife submits or loves or serves because she chooses to, not because it's like, well, I had to. That's only reason I did it. I wouldn't enjoy, that wouldn't be fulfilling to me, and it wouldn't paint the picture of Christ and his church. Uh, let me take a, a quick moment to say this. This works when we learn the art of gazing over glancing. Um, Ephesians 522 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. And verse 25, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And I love this because this is so counterintuitive. This is humanly impossible to even imagine except for the person of Jesus christ what paul is saying submit as to the lord love as christ has loved he's saying choose to sacrifice yourself for the thriving of your spouse as if unto the lord i love this because the only way this happens is when i learn to glance at my spouse and then gaze at jesus I do not love my wife because she is perfect. I don't love her because she's got it all together. I don't love her because she hears my heart. I don't love her because she knows how to handle my pain. I don't love her because she always supports my dreams and my aspirations. I love her because I take a glance at her, but then my eyes lift higher and higher until I take a gaze at Jesus who has loved me perfectly, even in my imperfection. That is the only way I can love an imperfect woman, even when when she fails me, even when she rejects me, even when she ridicules me because I'm learning the art of glancing at her and then gazing at Jesus who is the perfect blueprint and example of what it means to sacrifice for people even when they don't deserve it. If you are looking at your spouse and trying to fix them to determine and decide whether or not they're worthy of your love, they never will be. The only way you submit to a husband who's being a jerk. Is because you are going over his head. I'm not even looking at you. This isn't even about you. I am looking above you to Jesus who has loved me perfectly. And who submitted to his father even when it was painful. And he's the one who's filling my soul. He's the one who's motivating. He's the one who's fueling my ability to submit to you. And some of you feel free to remind your spouse of that. It's not even about you right now. It is totally about Jesus right now. Because if it was about you we would have some issues. And so I don't know how you pray for your spouse. I don't know how you pray for you, but one of the most compelling prayers is, Jesus, would you help me to gaze on you and glance at my spouse? And "Mm, mm, I like glancing, trust me, there's a time for that. But Jesus, can you help me to become fixated on you. What I want my daughter and my son to understand is gaze on Jesus. He, it, it's ultimately about him. And he's the only means by which I can sacrifice even for a person who's hurting me. Because that's what he did for us. And now the world is confused. Trying to understand how we can continue to serve and love each other. Even in our imperfections. And eventually they're going to want to know what are you gazing at? Well, let me introduce you to the one who sacrificed himself for me. I don't know what your picture of marriage is for those of you who may be anticipating marriage. And I don't know what your experience of marriage is for those of you who are in the midst of it. But it must ultimately be about the person of Jesus Christ and us learning how we can reflect his sacrificial, voluntary love for each other. And the only way that happens is as we gaze at him. It is ultimately about Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would be compelled by your sacrifice and it would inform and influence the way we dream about marriage, the way. We live marriage out. Your ideal marriage is one in which the native language is sacrifice. That's chosen because we look at the face of the one who chose to sacrifice himself for us. And so, Lord, as we talk about dating, as we talk about sex, and as we talk about singleness, may we see the way Jesus and his sacrifice speaks to all of those things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.